So um, I'm going to start the ball rolling in this first session looking at birth narratives because many of the uh, two brothers in Genesis have birth narratives associated with them. So I thought we'd spend a little bit of time thinking about that this morning and hopefully it will illuminate some passages of scripture and point us to Christ. Um, The first slide I should warn you, uh, some if you're a bit squeamish you might find this offensive so I have warned you. You may not welcome somebody telling you that there are only 105 days left to Christmas. I don't know how many shopping days there are beyond me to work that out. Um, Christmas can be problematic for us as pastors. I remember in the corridor down there, uh, and Andrew Davis, when he was the minister of this church, uh, he and I fell on each other's necks and wept. What are we going to do about Christmas this year? You know, we've been doing Christmas for 10, 12, 15 years. How do we find something new to say? And the problem for us with Christmas is that it is so encrusted with all sorts of baggage. That's a mixed metaphor. Um, You know, marine archaeologists talk about concretions when they're pulling up these cannons and anchors from the seabed. They're covered in concretions, uh, barnacles and rust and all these things. And sometimes they have become inseparable from the object itself. And I feel that way about Christmas for us. There are so many concretions attached to Christmas. And one of the helpful ways of getting rid of all that is to go back and and look at the gospel accounts and see how they saw the birth of Christ with all that tradition of 20 centuries of fabrications and fables and innkeepers and um, stables and all the rest of it. And one of the things that helpfully allows us to do this is to recognize that when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels and the first readers read those Gospels, they were probably much more alive than we are to the tradition of birth narratives in the Old Testament. And so that's where we're heading this morning. We're going to look at Old Testament birth narratives and hopefully end up at a point where we make some comments about the way that Jesus' nativity is represented in Scripture. And that may help us to reclaim a biblical Christmas, although perhaps I'm being overambitious in that. So first of all then, Old Testament birth narratives. How many are there and what do they look like? And I have identified 17 Old Testament birth narratives being quite inclusive so some of them are only a couple of verses I've included for example Cain and Abel in there and there isn't really a birth narrative of Abel there is one verse about Cain but all those 17 are on the handout that you were given uh, hopefully when you came in there are some long ones however the longest are Isaac who has 22 verses the children of Rachel and Leah 29 verses between them. Samson, 25 verses. Samuel, 28 verses. This this is in the the whole Old Testament. So there are some fairly lengthy narratives as well as a few short ones. And so I've put them all on this table, um, which I will explain to some extent, although all my diagrams are self-explanatory and require no real elucidation. But... um, So I've tried to tabulate them in this way to show that there is no one definitive birth narrative except perhaps that of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that there are features that not all birth narratives have all of them, but there are shared common characteristics. And if you read along the rows, 
then the more white there is on the row, the more that particular feature is a characteristic. So there are certain things that are in almost all birth narratives. Um, within Genesis, there are 11. So 11 of the 17 birth narratives in the Old Testament occur in the book of Genesis. And I've identified five two-brother narratives, which I don't think we're going to deal with all of these, this, uh, this conference, and also three two-mother narratives. And I'm going to look at one or two, uh, uh, two, two brother narratives and possibly a, a two mother narrative if I've got time. And Isaac and Ishmael, Hagar and Sarah is both. So there is a, a substantial theme here. This conference is not, you know, on a paper thin pretext. There is a substantial theme here that does um, deserve some consideration. So then taking that chart, what are the features of birth narratives? And the, the first point is that there is a stripe through the middle of the chart indicating that the, the top half there are conception narratives and the bottom half are birth narratives. And there are arguably more features to the conception narratives than the birth narratives. And most of the characters concerned have both a conception and a birth narrative. Not all do. So the conception narratives... Uh, quite rarely there is a, some kind of enunciation before conception. And I say this because, of course, there is definitely enunciation before conception in the case of the Lord Jesus, but it's quite rare in the Old Testament birth narratives, possibly Isaac, um, arguably Samson, but it's not quite clear in Samson as, as to whether Samson's mother had already conceived then or not. A much more common feature is that there is some difficulty that the mother has in conceiving. So the figure nine there, if you can, I'm sorry, some of these colour combinations work very well on the iPad. They don't work so well on the wall. Um, but in nine cases, there is a difficulty in conception which has to be overcome. Quite often, the word barren is actually used. Um, and also, there is a, a significant feature that occurs more than once of a, a, some kind of unwillingness on the part of fathers to conceive children and we saw that in the uh, Judah and Tamar narrative and so what we have is some difficulty in conception which God then overcomes and that in itself is a sign and hopefully as I'm saying all this you're thinking about how this resonates with the Lord Jesus and of course the Lord Jesus mother had a difficulty in conceiving namely she was a virgin and God overcame that as a sign um, in the vast majority of cases, you have the Hebrew verb hara to conceive, and the Greek equivalents in the Septuagint, which are then echoed in the uh, New Testament narratives. So the conception verb is there. And one of the things that really interested me is that the, 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 um, the verb to beget is never used in any of these birth narratives. Now, I need to explain, unpack this a little bit. Um, if somebody can tell me what the modern equivalent of the verb to beget is, I would be very grateful, because I don't think there is one. So our translations tend to have, was the father of, which is a bit weak. Um, in Hebrew, it's the, the hifil of yalav. Yalav is to give birth, and the hifil is to cause to give birth. So in many places in scripture, a man begat a son. He caused to give birth to a son. But that verb never occurs 
in these birth narratives, quite strikingly. And that suggests to us a point I will elaborate on later, that it is the woman's part that is very much in the spotlight, not the man's, which of course resonates again with the narratives of the birth of Christ. Very often, the woman takes the initiative to produce children. And that's a feature which, again, I think there's some theology behind that which deserves unpacking. So those are the features of the conception narratives. Uh, One more. Sometimes, but only in three cases, there is an oracle about future destiny, which, of course, there is in the case of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. So then the actual birth narratives proper, the features there are almost always you have the verb you're allowed to give birth, in all, all except one case, which you'd expect. Nothing spectacular about that. Sometimes there is a difficulty or an anomaly in the birth. And in some of the twin narratives, as the one with um, Perez and Zerah, you've seen something there, which again makes people sit up and take notice. There is a sign here. The child is always named. And again, it's fascinating that twice as often the child is given the name by the mother rather than the father. It's not always uh, possible to tell. So on the chart, there are some ambiguities as to whether it's the father or the mother. Not entirely clear, even in the um, Tamar narrative, whether it's the midwife who gives the children their names. Um, but there is certainly a downplaying of the father's role and uh, an enhancement of the mother's role in that. And only in the case of Ishmael, interestingly enough, is the name given by God. We think about Jesus, of course, and God gives him the name Jesus. Um, It's only in the case of Ishmael, out of all these Old Testament birth narratives. I don't know whether we can make anything of that, but it's kind of interesting. So we're still at the stage of collecting our data at the moment. In two cases, the boy, it's actually mentioned that the boy is circumcised, and of course that has a resonance with Christ's birth narratives. And it's quite, I found this quite surprising that only in two cases is there a reference to the circumcision of the child. So then in summary, the conception and birth narratives in the Old Testament have the following features. There is usually some difficulty in a woman conceiving a child and that difficulty is overcome by God sometimes the father or the mother prays for God to overcome it sometimes that's not stated sometimes quite often the characters recognize that God has done something in order to overcome this difficulty Um, secondly the emphasis is on the woman conceiving rather than on the father begetting And I'll explain why I think that's significant and what the underlying theology behind that might be, if theology is not too grand a term. Um, Thirdly, the woman gives birth, obviously, and usually it is she who names the child. And also usually the, the name given to the child explains something about the birth circumstances. It's not usually a forward-looking statement of destiny except in the case where God gives the name to Ishmael and then I put some exceptional features because there are some interesting things in individual cases so that's typically um, what a birth narrative looks like exceptional things are just occasionally there is an announcement before conception that a child is going to be born Isaac is a 
classic case. Um, so just occasionally there is an antenatal oracle of destiny, what this child is going to go on and become. And in one case, as we've seen, God actually gives the name that the child is to bear. So then, having amassed our data, as it were, what's the underlying theology? So, the first point is that there is a Yalav motif in the book of Genesis. Genesis, of course, is the book of origins. And you're, no doubt, very familiar with the fact that Genesis contains many genealogies. And also that Genesis is uh, divided by the use of a Toledoth motif. This word usually translated something like these are the generations of or these are the things brought forth by. And that comes from the same root, Yalath, to give birth in the Hephiel to beget. So what this looks like in diagram form is this. This is Genesis, the 50 chapters of Genesis. And at the top, in the sort of pinky red colour, you've got all the Toledoth. <coughs> Uh, motifs and the green stripes are the genealogies and if you like that's emphasizing the male part um, it's usually the, the, the Toledoth apart from the heavens and the earth are the Toledoth of a patriarch and the genealogies descend from a patriarch but underneath if you like undergirding all this in, interwoven with that are all the, the birth narratives emphasizing the woman's role so in Genesis you have I would suggest this giving birth, this Yalav motif running through the book both from the male and the female sides um, and sort of giving structure to the book itself and so there's some fairly obvious theology here forgive me if I'm teaching grandmothers to suck eggs um, first of all we go back to Genesis 1 and the creation mandate God created humanity Ha'adam in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be productive and become many and fill the land or the earth. Bring it into submission. So the uh, creation mandate to populate the earth with image-bearing human beings is given both to man and woman um, equally. Um, complementarily, if that is a word. But... When we get to Genesis chapter 3, which of course is after the fall, the child-bearing, seed-producing or perpetuating role is very much given to the woman. Remember how God says that there would be enmity between the snake and the woman. It's very striking that God doesn't say enmity between the snake or the serpent and humanity or the man. It's the woman. And the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman not the seed of the man or the seed of hum some general term humanity. And I think, and I'll come back to this, that this is possibly what Paul means in Galatians when he talks about Jesus being born of a woman. I think it's more than just a Semitic phrase for a human being, although some commentators say that. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I think the being born of a woman is significant from Genesis 3.15 onwards. And so I think the prominence of women in these birth narratives and uh, often in taking the initiative to ensure the survival of a seed line I think is taking us back to it's rooted in Genesis chapter 3 and what God says to the woman and then of course we have these words I will greatly increase your hardship and your conception this is a difficult phrase 
Um, and I'm not going to unpack it all now because we've done Genesis 3 already in previous conferences. In strenuous labour you will bear children and two or four your husband will be your desire. I'm not going to go into that either, the question of what does that desire, is it natural desire for him or desire to rule over him and he will rule over you. Because I think we can make one or two observations uh, about how this works out anyway in birth narratives. So the conclusion I draw from this fundamental theology in the early chapters of Genesis is that the straightforward and joyful mandate to uh, populate the earth with human beings bearing the image of God is now subject to a curse. And so being fruitful and taming nature, the mandates from chapter 1 now become difficult for the human race, anything but straightforward. And that then underpins some of the things that we read in the birth narratives in Genesis. Some of the difficulties uh, are the outworking of the curse and the outworking of some of the things that are said in Genesis chapter 3. So, also, after Genesis 3, the mandate to be fruitful and increase and fully fill the earth Added to that, seed lines become very important after Genesis 3, lines of descent, because of that prophecy about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so the preservation of a seed line is a very significant theme in the book of Genesis. And very often, this is what the women are doing in taking the initiative. If we have time this morning, this is the section I've earmarked to cut out, but if we've got time, we'll look at Lot's daughters, because I think this is very interesting in that regard <clears throat> so how does this play out then in, in birth narratives women have a natural urge and a God given role to bear children and perpetuate the seed and I just remind you of Rachel's comment in, uh, to, to Jacob in chapter 30 give me children or I die and part of that this is you know, not just um, you know, an emotional woman um, or something like that. Part of that is the natural and God-given urge to produce children and to perpetuate a seed line. But there is difficulty now in doing that because there is this inability to conceive in some cases, the barrenness, which is part of the lack of productivity and fruitfulness that the original creation had and now doesn't have after the, the fall and the curse. <coughs> the unwillingness of men to procreate like Judah um, and it seems as though Lot's daughters felt that their father had put them in a position where they were not able to fulfil this mandate and the difficulty in giving birth and you know, ultimately in the case of Rachel and Ichabod's mother um, death in childbirth so this is how the Genesis 3 plays out in the birth narratives um, then there are other things like expedience the urge to, to perpetuate a seed line means that people go to lengths like proxy motherhood in the case of Hagar and Bilhah and Zilpah. And fertility aids, the mandrakes referred to in chapter 30 is probably uh, an aphrodisiac or the expedient of leveracy. Uh, that is to say that if a man dies without issue, 
it is the responsibility of a family member, usually a brother, to have children by his widow in order to um, raise up a, a seed line for him. And I think this is what's going on in, in a number of the Genesis birth narratives. And so it is within this context that given that there's a curse on the world, there's a curse on fertility and productivity, and that in overcoming that, to produce significant children, God is saying something significant about not just the destiny of that child, but his ability to negate the effects of the curse. So, um, <clears throat> another feature is that the, the Toledoth genealogies and birth narratives talk about origins and destinies. And Another feature that we should not lose sight of as we look at some of these things is the interest that the Sinai generation had in the origins of the people groups around them. I'm a great believer in reading Genesis backwards from Exodus. So my first question in reading anything in Genesis is what would this have meant to Moses' generation? What would this have meant to the Israelites in the wilderness? And very often um, there is an immediately obvious answer with these narratives and that is explaining why you know, who the Moabites were, who the Ammonites were, who, how they were related to the Israelites and therefore perhaps how they should be treated and expect to be treated by them. We mustn't miss that by leaping ahead too, too quickly. So two examples now. I want to look at, I think we've got time actually to look at Lot's daughters as well as Judah and Tamar. <clears throat> So first of all then, um, Lot's daughters. This is a two-sister narrative producing two brother cousins. And the knee-jerk reaction to a passage like this for us as pastors and preachers is to take a moralizing approach. So this is what Matthew Henry does with this narrative. Quote, Lot's daughters laid a very wicked plot to bring him to sin, and theirs was, doubtless, the greater guilt. Their project was very wicked and vile, and an impudent affront to the very light of law and nature. And he then goes on to make some application about avoiding temptation when we think we are safe, and the perils of drunkenness. And it's not difficult to imagine a sermon along those lines being preached today, and in fact... Gordon Wenham in his commentary says, quote, his daughters resort to sex with their father, suggesting that they shared the warped morality of the city from which they had all escaped. I'm not sure about that. But it, we could preach a series or a sermon on Lot, his poor decision to live in Sodom, how that effect affected him because he was exposed to the immoral behaviour of society around him, and that infects and affects his daughters, and we can trace a line there for from Sodom through Lot's daughters to the Moabites leading the Israelites into sexual immorality in Numbers 25. They were a thoroughly bad lot. Look where they came from and it all came from Lot's bad decision to live in Sodom. Is that what Genesis 19 is about? Is that what the author of Genesis 19 wants us to take away? Is that what he wanted the Sinai generation to take from it? I find it hard to accept that. First of all, 2 Peter 2 tells us that Lot was a righteous man. 
And remember Abraham's intercession in Genesis 18 implies that there were some righteous people perhaps left in Sodom. Uh, Lot was able to escape. That gives me pause for, for questions. So then let's think about the context in Genesis first. There is a mandate to be fruitful. And what these two women were engaged in was procreation, not recreation. In other words, I think in a post-Victorian, post-Freudian society, we tend to look at narratives like this and we can't escape the scandalous uh, sort of aspects of this uh, kind of a story. But we've got to look at it with different eyes, I think. Um, I think we draw a contrast here with the inhabitants of Sodom in verse 5. Bring, out, bring them out that we may know them. Uh, that's straightforward immorality. But what Lot's daughters are engaged in here is something different. I think what they are looking for is leveracy. They've come out, I think they are widows now. I think these are the same daughters whose husbands stayed in Sodom because they thought Lot was talking nonsense. So I think these are now widowed uh, daughters of Lot who want to perpetuate their father's line. And there is no one to do this. And it's interesting that the, the, the Hebrew phrase they use, there is no man to come upon us. Now the normal phrase, uh, this is on the, on the handout, is bow to come and el, come towards or come to. That's the normal way or a normal way of describing sexual intercourse. But they use bow plus al, preposition al, to come upon. And the only other place where you find this is in Deuteronomy 25, Verse 5, where the context is leveracy. And so it seems to me that this is what they, they desire. They want someone, they want a man to produce children for their father's line. So this is not, I, su I suggest, immoral behaviour. It is an extreme expedient in the case where they think there is no other prospect and when they say, as is the case in all the world, or, or, or as, the, as is the way in all the world, it may be that they mean leveracy. This is what's done in the world, and we have no opportunity. Um, there is a stipulation in the Torah that a widow must not marry outside the family, in the case of leveracy. So who's going to do it for them? Who have they got left? And... Um, in the case of leprosy, some normal sexual taboos are suspended. So it would not be right in, uh, in other cases for a brother to marry his um, sister-in-law, but that is suspended in Deuteronomy 25 in the case of leprosy for the greater aim of perpetuating the seed line. Um, then uh, you'll notice that the elder daughter who takes the initiative in this, uses this phrase, that we may preserve seed from our father. So that is her motivation. That we may preserve seed from our father. And that precise phrase is used in Genesis 7 verse 3 of the, pre the reason why the animals were taken into the ark, that their seed may be preserved. So that's what's going on here. It is a, a narrative about the preservation of seed. And that reference to Genesis 7 suggests a comparison with Noah. And there is a comparison to be made because Noah, you remember, got drunk and was apparently taken advantage of, possibly sexually, by, what, by his son. And that, that act resulted in a blight on the people group descended from the guilty son. 
But that's explicit in Genesis 9. In the case of Lot's daughters, there is no statement that the Moabites and the Ammonites are in some way cursed because of their origins. In fact, Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, says that the Moabites and Ammonites, they are condemned for their inhospitability towards the Israelites, not because of their origins. However, the context in the Pentateuch, first of all, it explains the origin and degree of kinship between Israel and Moab and Ammon, Uh, in the same way that chapter 25 describes that with respect to the Keturites, descendants of Abraham, and the Ishmaelites, and then the Edomites in chapter 36. Gordon Wenham, quote, Despite the dubious origin of these near neighbours, this was not held against them. Their territories were regarded as God-given, Deuteronomy 2, verse 9 and 19. Only Moab's and Ammon's lack of hospitality towards the Israelites on their way to Canaan prompted later animosity. On the other hand... The Moabites were guilty of hiring Balaam to curse Israel and leading the Israelites into sin. So I think it's finely balanced, this one, as to whether the irregularity of the birth of Moab and Ammon, uh, Ben-Ami, whether you regard that as kind of um, predictive, proleptic of their future role or not. But it's certainly not very clear in the text that there is that connection being made. So my conclusions are that the story of Lot's daughters does not provide us with a morality tale about sexual conduct. It explains the degree of kinship between Israel and Moab and Ammon and that this reflects badly upon their lack of fraternal hospitality towards the Israelites later on. Although the means of producing offspring in this case was taboo even by ancient Near Eastern standards, the desire to preserve seed is likely to be represented, I think, in a positive way. So this is commendable on the part of these two women, that that was their desire. You can take me up on this later if you want. Okay, so there's Judah now, the passage that was read to us. So we have another two-brother narrative, which actually follows on a three-brother narrative, because the chapter begins with the three original sons of Judah, who are married to Tamar, the first two of them, and who die. And then Tamar takes the initiative to force Judah. Judah has promised the third one to her, but is dragging his feet on that. So again, a moralising approach is that nobody comes out of this with any credit. Um, It's all sexual immorality. Uh, Judah's foolish friendship with Hira the Canaanite leads to unwise marital unions, and sexual deviancy. Some of the commentators go down this line. Matthew Henry says that Judah married too young and too rashly. He married his sons off too young and he was unjust to his daughter-in-law and exposed her to temptation and that Tamar, quote, uh, wickedly prostituted herself as a harlot. Is that what's going on here? Has Judah exposed Tamar to temptation? Has she become a prostitute? I don't think that's what's going on in the narrative. Um, First of all, in a reading, Judah's acknowledgement, she is more righteous than I. And in the Hebrew, of course, it's she is righteous from me. I think it is a min of comparison, but it does read starkly, she is righteous. And the Good News Bible translates, she is in the right. She's in the right, which I think is not bad. 
And Tamar is a heroine of the tribe of Judah, as we see in Ruth chapter 4. You know, may your house be like that of Tamar. So she's not a wicked scarlet woman in the way she's represented in the Bible. So let's look at the context in Genesis again, the mandate to be fruitful. Again, it's procreation, not recreation. Tamar does not embark on this course of action because, um, you know, she's sexually frustrated. She embarks on this because she wants to produce children for her dead husbands. Um, Also notice, verse 26, he never knew her again. So this is nothing to do with fulfilment of sexual desire. It's all to do with preservation of seed lines. In fact, the preservation of Judah's seed line from extinction. Because the first two sons of Judah um, are dead without issue. And if Judah doesn't marry uh, his third son to somebody, then the, the whole survival of Judah's line is under threat. And so we come again to the pledges that Tamar makes Judah give to her. What's the purpose of that? Um, It's not, and this is a quote from Bruce Walker, I quite like the phrase here, quote, a reputable gentleman who unwittingly loses his credit card in a brothel. But I think there's something, there's more to it than that. Um, It's not to prove Judah's guilt, it's to prove his paternity. That's why she takes these pledges. Not to prove that that she is more righteous than him. She's got no interest in doing that. She's proving that the children that she's carrying are his. And that he is the father. And it's therefore leverancy. And again, in Deuteronomy 25, the laws about leverancy override incest laws of Leviticus 18 and 20 and other places. And they also override the inheritance laws of of Numbers 27. So there is a strong um, uh, uh, almost a command yes, a command I think is not too strong for people to raise up issue for dead, childless men. And then um, it's also interesting that leprosy by a father-in-law was permitted in ancient Near Eastern law codes in some cultures, Hittites and Middle Assyrian laws. Then we've got to consider the gift of twins as well. Um, A gift from God to compensate Tamar for her lack of children from two previous marriages. Is that what's going on? Is it uh, to replace Judah's two dead sons? Or is it a sign of Judah's prominence over his brothers, like the two sons of Joseph later on in Genesis? And this then suggests that there is a comparison deliberately being made here by the author of Genesis with Jacob and Esau, another twin birth, the birth of twins. And we have other comparisons. The younger supplants the older, just as was the case with Jacob and Esau. Perez, like his grandfather Jacob, is one who strives and prevails. The one expected to get the birthright is associated with the colour red. Judah's deception mirrors Isaac's deception to give, uh, being deceived to give birthright to Jacob. Um, and it, interestingly, there's even a goat and some clothes used in both cases to facilitate the deception. So that suggests there are levels of comparison being made here which make us see Judah and Tamar's union as being like another 
um, Isaac and Rebekah type union. And this would therefore make Judah a new Isaac. Bruce Walker again, quote, In Book 10, both Joseph and Judah emerge as the leader among the brothers. Joseph occupies a central stage, Judah a secondary one. Nevertheless, in this opening act, the birth of his twins marks him out as the son to succeed his father as the leading patriarch. And by the end of Book 10, he means the last section of Genesis from the last Toledo onwards, um, by the end of Book 10, Judah wins the enduring crown, which I'll come to in a moment. So then we have the naming of the children. And it seems as though it is the midwife. Unfortunately, it's just a she said in the Hebrew. But it seems it's the midwife who gives these two, the twins, their names. Um, Zerah means a bursting forth. It can be the sun bursting forth. And Perez a breach or a bursting out. And what's the point of the narrative from the uh, point of view of, of Sinai, of Moses' generation? Well, it explains the preeminence of the Perizzites and the tribe of Judah. And so this bar chart shows the, po the uh, populations of the 12 tribes. And you can see there that Judah has the highest uh, population both in um, Numbers 1 and in Numbers 26, the beginning and the end of the 40 years. And um, you had to have a few diagrams today. This is the encampment of the tribes around the Ark of the, uh, the, the Tabernacle in the wilderness. You can see that Judah, Judah is in the vanguard, heading eastward. It's the biggest tribe in the centre of the eastward progression. And so this narrative, on a very limited level, explains to the Israelites why the tribe of Judah is so prominent and why the clan of Perez is so prominent within the clan of Judah but there's more there's this intriguing verse 29 as Zerah drew back his hand Perez emerged and the midwife declared how did you break through or burst out upon you a breaching and it's quite concise in the Hebrew and so it's difficult to know exactly how to translate this so Wenham has why have you burst burst upon you Perez it doesn't seem to make sense in English let alone in Hebrew Hamilton has why a, what a breach you have made for yourself which is a paraphrase New King James revised authorised how did you break through this breach be upon you ok that's kind of literal but I don't know what it means either in English NIV so this is how you have broken out again a paraphrase ESV what a breach you have made for yourself paraphrase Good News Bible so this is how you break your way out so nobody really knows how to translate this. Now I'm saying this, stressing this, because we then have some sympathy for the Targums. Uh, we can't criticise them for paraphrasing if all these English versions do the same. But the Targum uh, Onkelos, sorry, I've gone ahead of myself, translates this way. What great power is upon you to become powerful? And it is, as is so often found in the Targums, a messianic interpretation of this particular phrase. And probably, therefore, it's messianic based on knowing what comes next in Genesis 49, which is what um, Philip Eveson read for us at the beginning here, the prophecy about Judah and his destiny to become the leader and the kingly one and from whom kings would come. Judah, you shall be praised by your brothers. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall prostrate themselves before you. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be given the obedience of peoples. So because of that messianic strand in Genesis 49, it seems that the Targums um, understand this obscure phrase about Perez in Genesis 38 messianically. So then we can push on a little bit further. The context within the Old Testament is a context of kingship. So we can go on tracing the line about kingship from the promises to Abraham in Genesis 17 through, I would argue, Genesis 38 and 49, the passages we've just been looking at. And on into, first of all, Ruth chapter 4 and 1 Chronicles 2, the genealogy from Perez down to King David. And... Bruce Walker again, in retrospect then, this chapter is about the birth of a royal seed in the continuity and discontinuity between the generations. God had promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that they would have royal offspring from their own bodies. Of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah is singled out to carry on this royal lineage. Tamar, a wrong wife, i.e. Canaanite, serves, saves the family by her loyalty to it. The four women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all come from outside of Israel and have a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marriage union. But because of their faith, God deems them worthy to carry royal seed. And the point here is that Tamar has rejected her Canaanite heritage, shown loyalty to Judah, echoes of Ruth here rejecting the Moabite heritage, and also Hagar rejecting her Canaanite heritage. Then we can make another comparison, and that is with the narrative of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. So David here is showing himself to be the son of his ancestor Judah, an illicit sexual relationship from which a child is born, followed by a period of quietness when he thinks he's got away with it. Then the man expresses righteous indignation when it's... um, uh, in, in Judah's case when he discovers that Tamar is pregnant in David's case over the parable that uh, Nathan sa- um, says to him over the misconduct of another then the man is trapped into admitting his own culpability and makes a public acknowledgement of guilt and so there are those resonances narrative resonances as well that tie Tamar, uh, um, Judah to David and so to Christ So how do the gospel writers exploit this tradition then? There is deliberate Torah intertextualism in the gospels, in the beginning of the gospels particularly. So John chapter 1 verse 1, Enarche in the beginning is the way the Septuagint begins Genesis. So John is starting off his gospel by saying the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is as big as the creation of the world. Or Jesus Christ rewrites the Bible, something along that scale of impact Matthew begins his gospel the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Greek is up there on the, on the screen and that is verbatim the Septuagint the first two Toledoth in Genesis Genesis 2.4 and 5.1 so Matthew here is saying Toledoth and his readers would have understood that in a way that we don't then we've already mentioned Matthew's inclusion of the four women and three birth narratives um, from the Old Testament. Why does he include these four women? Um, Hamilton very helpfully says, gives some suggestions which he rejects. Is it because they were sinful and Matthew wants to say that the gospel is for sinners? 
that's probably not the reason. Uh, many of the men were also sinful. Um, is it because they were Gentiles? Well, that doesn't really fit because Mary wasn't a Gentile. Is it because of an intra-Jewish debate about the ancestry of the Messiah? It's possible there is something in that. Um, for time, I'm not going to say more about that. Uh, but probably more, it's because these women had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union, but were, by God's providence, links in the chain to the Messiah. Quote, accordingly, says Hamilton in his commentary on Genesis, each of them prepares the way for Mary, whose marital situation is also peculiar, given the fact that she is pregnant but not, had, not yet had sexual relations with her betrothed, betrothed husband Joseph. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree on one hand foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ and on the other hand blunts any attack on Mary. Um, then Matthew's other references to the birth narrative tradition, God overcoming, the impossibility of conception, giving a prenatal oracle of destiny based on a name and also the massacre of the innocents recalls Exodus chapter 1. Luke has the genealogy from Adam and so that clearly references the Genesis genealogies. And he references uh, the Song of Hannah from one of the big Old Testament birth narratives in 1 Samuel and also in the Mary's Magnificat and um, in the John the Baptist birth narratives as well. The announcement of destiny before conception and before birth. God overcoming barrenness in the case of Elizabeth and virginity in the case of Mary. The conceived verb but no beget verb. doesn't say beget in the case of Zechariah and obviously not in the case of Joseph. The birth verb, the naming by the mother, circumcision of the son. And I'm going to argue that Paul's reference in Galatians 4 to born of a woman taps into all this. It doesn't just mean a human being, although Christ's humanity is, of course, essential. So if I can finish with a few things that you might want to take up pastoral reflections on all this there is a, a cultural lack of traction with all this what I'm saying it doesn't surprise me that people don't preach the story of Lot's daughters in the way that I've described because these are you know the, the perpetuation of a seed line is not the way that people think about having children today so these things have a lack of traction for people today but I think we must understand them to understand what's going on in Genesis however I think there is also a biblical lack of traction because Christ's birth narratives are the last birth narratives in the Bible. I don't count Revelation 12, verse 6, if anybody's going to bring that up, because that's an allegorical passage, not a birth narrative. Um, but let me give you a few other references. Luke 3, 8. God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, said John the Baptist. Luke, uh, Matthew eight eleven. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. John eight thirty nine. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Romans 4, 6. The promise is to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Galatians 3, 7. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, am I straying on your territory now, Gary? If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. So in other words, there seems to be a New Testament reason why the perpetuation of seed lines is no longer important because it is fulfilled in Christ. So a couple of other things then, very quickly to finish. Creation. seems to me that these narratives do highlight the importance 
of the woman's place in fulfilling the creation mandate. One of the things that really struck me, I I read in the last year, was somebody talking about, it was in the context of idolatry, and he, he said the only legitimate way of making an image of God is through human procreation. And that is the way the image of God is perpetuated in the world. And these birth narratives highlight the role played by women, particularly in that creation mandate. Um, And I think the Genesis balance between genealogies and Toledoth and birth narratives um, mean uh, that stress that we have a proper complementarianism. I think it raises questions about our attitudes towards our children and having children and the fact that having children is a lifestyle choice now in our society and and whether there's there's something to be said uh, in critique of that from these narratives. And also I think they do have something to say about childlessness, um, that the urge to have uh, have children is creational. It is fundamental and human, uh, and human, but that difficulty in having children is part of the fallen world, and it's there in the pages of Scripture. I think another way, therefore, of approaching these narratives is to see that it's like providence. Providence it works, to my mind, and I think the Westminster Confession bears me out, um, God ordinarily does not interrupt the laws of physics and cause and effect. But he can, he can do so at any moment, but chooses not to. But there are times when he chooses to do so, and I think that's what we have in these birth narratives. So that in that sense, they don't tell us, uh, don't give us much useful information as to how to counsel the ordinary childless couple, because God is doing the extraordinary in these uh, narratives. And finally, the importance of the women's, of women's roles in redemption history. And we can go to the end of the Gospels as well, can't we, and think about the women, Luke 8, who supported Jesus, who were there at the cross, who were the first to see him in his resurrection state, um, subverting the wrong kind of patriarchy. And I think sometimes with complementarianism, it all depends what you mean by complementarian. Sometimes there seems to be an awful lot of baggage that goes with being complementary and that I'm not sure comes out of Genesis 1 to 3. And so I think these birth narratives help us to redress the balance a little bit. Thank you.